Hello, and welcome to episode three of Repertory Screenings. I'm your host, M, and with me are my regular co-host, Jackson. Hello. And Destiny. Howdy. And we're here to talk about a movie once again. That's what we do here. That's what we do here. Yeah. Uh, this week, I almost said month, but this is a bi-weekly podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about all the president's men. Every single uh, one of them. Yep. <laughs> uh, they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Jackson, you spoke up first, so please tell me about All the President's Men. All the President's Men is a movie uh, from 1976, I believe. Uh, yes. About the Watergate scandal, uh, specifically based on a book uh, written by the people who are the characters in the movie, uh, Bernstein and Woodward, uh, Bob Woodward and something Bernstein. Carl Bernstein. Carl, Carl Bernstein. Uh, and it is about their investigation into the Watergate scandal. Uh, it is directed by i know who did not have this pulled up didn't have pulled up (laughs) alan j pakula okay i was gonna say i was like is it pakula is it pakula i'm gonna embarrass myself so i had to go um, that was what that was yes directed by alan j pakula um, uh who has directed other uh known um paranoid political movies including the parallax view and uh clute which i haven't seen but i have seen the parallax view and that's very good uh and this came out in 1976, and it is a beloved movie and a true story that everyone knows about Watergate. Um, yeah. And me and M hadn't seen it until now, somehow. Uh, so yeah. it was filling in, filling in a big gap for us. Uh, screenplay by William Goldman, uh, worth noting. Yes, that is the other important credit here. Yeah. Uh but yeah, no, this is one of those, like, all of the big famous movies that was on put on the to-do list and never gotten around to. I have a lot of 70s gaps also, just specifically. Mm-hmm. And so, like, at, at the time of my life, I was watch, watching a lot of movies, a journalistic slash political thriller about the Nixon administration seemed like the worst use of my time. Because when you're in your 20s, you're a dumbass. <laughs> I was going through my early letterbox reviews today. <laughs> <laughs> can confirm yeah. Jackson currently in their 20s but not a dumbass this is my decree I know but I was when nice I was 18 Jackson. yes weren't we all yes but I was just <laughs> yes. cl- clearing up the digital records <laughs> at 18 yeah, I, I was I... getting really into Tarantino oh well so was I at 18 that yeah. was me four years before that no 18 18 for 14. me as well yeah. it was, what was, it was I into it was Kill Bill Sorry. that got me into Tarantino, and that came out when I was 18. So. Oh, okay. I we weren't counting down the days like old Destiny here. No. I can't remember what else I was into when I was 18. I was just into being, like, really, really smart and holier than thou. This all checks out. <laughs> Sounds like an 18-year-old. That was me, but for, like, books, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was like that about pretty much every aspect of media. And now we're all wise and old. Nope. Uh I'm I'm wise. I'm 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 neither. <laughs> I'm just old. <laughs> I'm I'm always gonna be the youngest one here, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's enough talking about being children. <laughs> Let's talk about the men who wrote the goddamn news. <laughs> they wrote the goddamn news. <laughs> well, I kind of wanted to just throw out there that uh, 
Robert Redford, who was the one who like immediately swooped up and got the rights to the uh, the film rights to the book, All the President's Men, was told that it was uncommercial as heck because it's just a bunch of typewriters and newspaper stuff. And he was told that nobody would be interested because everybody already knows the ending is what they told him. Mm. So why would anybody want to watch a movie about something they already know the ending to? And his argument was just like, that's not the point. The point is that we want to tell the story of these two guys and like the process, the tedium of uncovering this thing that really hadn't been seen on this wide a scale. Um, because there were, I think, over 60 indictments. And then, like, 40-some people went to jail. And he just thought that, like, going through the actual tedium of, you know, the investigation and then the not knowing whether or not they had it. Like, they kept, uh, you know, throughout this movie, Bernstein and Woodward constantly say to each other, like, do we have it? Do we have it? We have it. We don't have it. And it's just one of those things that I think is a really interesting dance that they play in trying to figure out what the truth is. Uh, Jackson, I'm going to call on you because you're not from here, so it could be funny. It won't be funny. You know too much. But if someone's young enough that they don't know what Watergate is, could you briefly explain the situation? Oh, this might actually be funny. <laughs> so, Watergate is a office building uh, the the Democratic National Convention had rented out, right? Or the DNC. It's a, it's a hotel, the, but yes. The the headquarters, the headquarters yeah, yeah, the Democrat Basically, the Democratic headquarters for the election campaign for uh, the um, election for the, the, the presidential election, I guess, Nixon, Nixon's right? re-election. Nixon re-election for a second time, yes. Uh, and Watergate was the headquarters, and five men get uh broken they they've broken in and they're wiretapping the building um or they're wiretapping specific phones of very clearly important people within the building um mm. and they are caught doing that and that is brushed off as like a local story and tried to be uh, as downplayed as possible by everyone in the government until it is revealed that <laughs> this has just been open policy for a while to just be like yo just tap tap the people who uh, who I want, who I want to keep records on? Just, just, just do it. I'm the president. Why the fuck not? Um, and, and as far as I know, that's that's the deal. Is the Watergate is just the the um, you know, they say it in the movie, it's just the one that happened to get c- caught, and it's the uh, wider operation of this becoming normal that is the the conspiracy and the um, the big thing that is revealed, right? Yes. Yeah, like there were tapes, and nobody expected these tapes to come out of. Nixon pretty much saying like, "Oh, the, you know, there's a whole conspiracy against me. I have enemies." And so, like, somebody says something about Jews, and it's real <laughs> gross how uh, these tapes. This uh, might not end be true, becoming... but in my what? limited understanding of the situation, I'm fairly sure that one of the reasons Nixon goes down so hard is because he had his own tapes in in the other office used against him when he was saying things yes yes, <laughs> yes. That's idiot. he was recording that conversations Moral. and then yeah. he got a hold of those as investigating the cover-up and uh he did not order the break-in but he did order the cover-up and being indicted on that is what caused him to resign okay yes 
And then uh, I'm pretty and, sure Ford pardoned him, and then it was all like yeah. kind of brushed away. But you know, he basically <laughs> disappeared from public and powerful life. Forever. I do know about the magnanimous wheel. The first thing we will do is pardon Nixon. <laughs> what the 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 thing that blows my mind? Just to go and like, we don't want to get too in the weeds about the history and the context specifically, mm-hmm. but like, I watched a little bit of the. Uh, all the President's Men revisited documentary that Robert Redford put together in 2013. And, like, they show footage of Nixon on television right before the resignation. Uh, um, what's the word I want? Like, before he reads his resignation on television. And they have the footage of him just, like, getting ready. And you wouldn't think he was about to resign. He's, like, making jokes and smiling and making oh do we have enough uh light in case the power goes out and he's just super like jokey like he's not taking it seriously it's very very strange (laughs) it's very weird Mm -hmm. yeah i I haven't seen any of that stuff i just know about the the broad history Mm -hmm. but yeah what what did we think of this movie i love the movie i think the movie's great me too as the uh, Sorkin fan among us, Jackson, uh-huh. you want to talk a bit about this? <laughs> you watched the newsroom. I did. Well, I mean, yes. And Sorkin... the West Wing. Um, look, I was a Sorkin fan. <laughs> I know. I, I mean I it. Mean, I mean it. Uh, I possibly. know what you mean, but there are lots of people listening to this. Maybe. <laughs> maybe there's only like four. I don't know. There are an amount of people listening to this, presumably. Uh, yes, back in the day I watched The West Wing. Not say I'm into it now, but the newsroom was always just awful. Uh, mm-hmm. So what? what's your question? <laughs> oh, just watching this in, like, if Sorkin could write any of this, he would shit himself and die in, <laughs> uh, like, uh, in a spiritual revelation that he was this skilled, finally. <laughs> it's very funny because there's actually, like, not that much thematic difference Um between like this being true gives it a weight that allows it to get away with it but there's really not that much thematic difference between this and what like the newsroom is and everyone hates about it of yes journalists Mm. are truly crusading the truth of america and keeping the politicians in check uh they like i said they only get away with it because in this one very explicit case that is what happened never again in history um but i mean there was there's a myth making in in this country of what journalism means like Sorry, you were you were gonna go on about Sorkin. Go on. Oh yeah, I was gonna. Yeah, we'll get back to that. Because I was just gonna say that like yeah. the thematically, there's not actually that much difference, right? They are doing the goddamn news while all the television is so dumb and shallow. But these men will do the damn news, <laughs> and it's very funny. Because uh, yeah, it, the the main difference is that it's like well written. <laughs> And, like, not the most inept thing ever made by human hands. And incredibly well acted. Yeah. Incredibly well and well acted. directed. Like, well, it's a good movie. <laughs> the part where it's a good movie carries a lot of weight. Like, we roast... Sorkin gets roasted a lot correctly for his uh, awful politics, but the if his movies were watchable, <laughs> he might get away with it. That's why Sports Night is still beloved by some people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, but yeah, I want to talk about the myth-making of journalism thing, because I think that's really interesting in this movie. So I want to go back to Destiny for a second, because it kind of stopped on her point. Oh, yeah, no, I just uh, realized I was interrupting you, but I just wanted to say, like, one of the thing- reasons why that I think is so important 
to people like Sorkin and just, you know, everyone surrounding just looking back on Watergate and the things people say, it's because this country was founded on these ideas that, like, no matter what happens to the people, like, no matter what the people in power do, the people who um, vote and the people who read and write the newspapers are going to be the one to take it, take down any sort of villainy that's going on in, you know, the White House and, you know, uh, on that level. Like, it's always going to, us against them, and, and we will always have your best interest, and we are the ones who can do this. And I just, in the face of, like, everything that's happened in the last <laughs> five years... 250 years. <laughs> it seems like a joke almost. And it's like depressing. Uh, but like, and people still, you know, believe in journalism. Democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> like, I don't even know what to say. Um, but it's just fascinating to me how. Like, I looked at this retrospective of all this, and only one person in the whole thing says people are, you know, completely uh, fooling themselves if they don't think that this uh, could happen again or that it isn't happening at all. I mean, I think the, like... kind of mind-blowing to me. Cultural <laughs> attitudes towards, like, surveillance have completely changed. If you revealed that everyone was being spied, like, no one cares, because it, everyone knows, right? Um, all of our data people is going buy, somewhere. People buy the, the cop devices to put in their homes to get spied <laughs> yeah. upon, because the data's better when you allow... When you pay for the privilege of being spied upon directly. Mm. Right, yeah, that's the, that's the big change, right? Is that now people are paying to be spied on, uh, and the main... Either you just don't care, uh, or the justification is that it it's mostly going to advertising and won't really affect your life. Um, so, like, the attitudes culturally to this have just completely 180 shifted uh, from surveillance as a concept just being fully terrifying to everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do, I do think it's uh, this movie really interesting as it's, like, doing double duties on American myth-making, because it's partially doing... Um, like building up the 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 journalist hero figure is like this completely independent outside of the government figure of impartial balancing like will uh balance power fact uh, uh like fight against power yeah power structures that exist and keep them in keep them honest with the with its truth and that's what uh, they're doing here uh is this very funny moment where <laughs> Bernstein like looks uh looks at Woodward and Woodward's like I'm a Republican too <laughs> and Bernstein's like you fucking want me <laughs> uh, a very good moment in the movie uh but also like trying to demystify the other like version of american myth making which is like the oval office is this actual figure of importance like uh it's about a criminal conspiracy but it's also very deliberate in saying the white house is just a bunch of guys who aren't very smart like that's one of the lines in the movie is there's just some people who aren't very smart who have power to do things uh like you are overthinking this on some level um yeah. and so putting those two those two things against each other is very interesting and in how it like it is building one um like 
cultural myth that has been uh used for some pretty crappy things along the way right with we we see how uh you know shitty newspapers and um journalists can be today and like completely dismissing marginalized voices while thinking they're on amazing crusades of like like watergate right like that's what they Mm. what i see i am what i actually am type stuff uh while also doing the exact opposite for the like a myth of american politics um uh because this is a true story i think i think there's like a built-in critique of that stuff within the movie though also Mm -hmm. uh because like for all the this is just a bunch of like dumb guys in office who misuse their power because they've been misusing their power since they were all in their rich colleges uh it does also reveal like the extent to which like uh the surveillance state military industrial complex has just infected everything yes like when they realize that it's not just like five guys that it's just the status quo of like the washington intelligence community and everyone's just low level agreed to this being the norm now uh it like reveals a much bigger more insidious problem because it doesn't have a head like you can remove nixon the machine's still in place the machine hums on today and has hummed on for a long time now yeah that's Um, why i think the ending of the movie is so effective because like since like in the context of 1976 you're not that far removed from it actually like everyone has just gotten arrested and you know serving their time when this movie's out and like it's it's uh i'm sorry i lost my train of thought (laughs) okay so i had a couple uh other things also like the military industrial complex is a concept, uh, like was popularized in uh, Eisenhower's speech when he was leaving the presidency, where he mm-hmm. warned the American public against like this endless war machine that this is a byproduct of. Like the intelligence machine is part of the war machine, uh, because we don't, we didn't used to ride tanks down American streets. We just quietly surveilled everyone. Uh, now we do both. Uh, yep. But also, uh, the thing about the newspapers is like the, the whole reason that the, like the movie has like why Bernstein and Woodward were able to do anything is because they were too young to realize that this was like a dead story to stop following. Like everyone in the newspaper office falls off of it in like week three and they go for like another year doing this investigation uh, because it's a newspaper. It's a business. It's part of this churn and machine yep. where you have to have something new every day. Like the scenes in which, all of the men in like actual fitted suits sit around and debate who gets what column pages uh, this time. Uh, and uh, Ben Bradley is like, ah, let the kids do the thing. Maybe we'll get something out of it uh, are some of the best scenes in the movie because it flies in the face of this sort of like the new, the good news, like the actual investigative news happens almost despite the efforts of a newspaper to be a business. Um also, and those two things just those two things just exist together. Also, like when yeah. you look at this in history, um, forty years on, you see the cynical view is like the right one, right? They did get an incredible story that boosted not only uh, their newspaper but the like reputation of newspapers in the entire profession for generations. Well, yes, they got to write a book that was bought by Robert Redford <laughs> right. and turned into a popular movie that is now famous. Like, immediately, and didn't actually change in any way the system with which they make their money or continue to do their business. Right, nothing about this mm-hmm. like actually changed in any material way, other than the people in charge of it at that moment lost their jobs. Uh, mm-hmm. And because I um. One of the things I really liked about the movie as a whole is that because it's a true story, 
it can't rely on like the regular uh like fear of death that a lot of these um uh parallel movies like the parallax view is a lot of like oh is it someone could be assassinated at any time in case they say the wrong thing uh and this movie can't have that right because it has to be more specific about the actual way power is like articulated on people's lives Yes. Um, the, the scene where Robert Redford like gets spooked and runs down the street to panic and then turns around and there's just nobody there. <laughs> nobody there. There's nobody there. There's no system for this. There's no system yeah. for this. It's like it's that and it's all the stuff early on with the uh just the terrified secretaries. And these journalists are going in and they are like actively ruining their lives and putting them in danger. Like it's not it's not shown that they're gonna be like assassinated right that's not how the world works what will happen is they might yes. lose their jobs they might lose their livelihoods they might like like the actors of power that operate on people are not hidden guns they are in front of us and how we interact with the world uh, and so uh all the stuff I where wanna, they, I, oh you go oh i want to circle around to this point in a second i just had one more thing about the oh, news yeah. part and then i actually really want to just focus on the way this movie talks and treats women because i think it's really interesting okay yes all right so my maybe like to me the stand-up performance is jason robards is ben bradley in this movie yep um i think it's great he is he is the like He's the myth, right? Like, he's a yes. character who's already yes. of another generation when this movie is made. He's the old newspaper bastion who, like, did the reporting, broke the news, commanded the newspaper, and now he's in charge. And he's got to make sure that all of the guys under him who want to make sure that the the news that gets read over the news that is good gets printed and is just, like, living in this, like not retirement, but like a twilight state where the country used to be a different way than it is today. Uh, and it's interesting that he, like all that is instilled in him and it's seen as like this, not even like a mentorship, but like the one person who can step in and like provide perspective when Bernstein and Woodward start to fly off the handle, worried about conspiracies. He's like, look, take a shower, go write the news. Everything will be fine. No one's here to snipe you while you're standing on my lawn in the middle of the night. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because like that uh, that scene, um, the the classic scene has been parodied a million times, right? Where he turns on the um, classical music, uh, mm-hmm. and starts typing in him and Bernstein are going back and forth, uh, typing their notes to each other because they could be spied on. People's lives are in danger. Deep Throat said so. And then it, the way that sequence ends, you're right with them just like lunatics standing on this man's lawn and nobody is watching them. <laughs> yeah, because. That's not. They're not actually threats to this system, as has been borne out by like this movie plays straight, right? Like I think you know maybe the people making it thought it was like a, a very straight heroic story, uh, but I do agree that like it does have enough self awareness that it reads. Uh, it still reads strong um, when you look at it with a critical mindset of how history has actually went. Mm. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at about the ending. It just sort of like it just lays out the facts and you don't really get a sense that like all right justice is served we're done here boys like that's not really the vibe and i think it's really interesting how they use um like there's never an actor playing nixon Mm -hmm. there's there's just always news footage because it's just like fresh you know and easy to get i don't know i just i think that's all very like well done it, it proves a point without being overt mm-hmm. uh, i also like that in that ending it is 
a montage of headlines that take an entire year. Like they start on the inauguration and uh, Nixon resigns in August of 74, like a year and a half over a year and a half later and compressing the part of like, they just kept doing the same cycle of uh, like pounding a beat and writing the story over and over again for another year and a half, almost two years uh, to get to where this was headed. Uh, because the book covers all that, and this is an adaptation of just, like, the first half of the book. Um, and I like th in which, like, there's no, like, state where, like, they high-five and say, we did it. Like, the end of the movie is yeah. them sitting down during the inauguration as the 21-gun salute goes off. And underneath that and rising up is just the sound of typewriters that fills the entire, like, soundscape. Because uh, that's, like, just the rapport of them catching up with the big cannons is very good. It's very good, yeah. Especially um, mm -hmm. with like how <laughs> uh, I was—I've completely lost my train of thought. I had something and then it just disappeared. <laughs> I okay. keep doing that today too. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> uh, do you want to circle around to the secretaries? Because uh, I think this is all worth talking about. Uh, this, yeah, yeah, this stuff's excellent because I like it in how these are like the heroic, um, the heroic journalists exposing the truth, blah blah blah. Yes, uh, and that's true. But it also shows how you don't just go up to the bad people and expose the truth right like the power is protected by a load of people who are just innocent mostly innocent maybe complicit in some way but really just agents in their lives that have like uh had to deal with this like these secretaries are not um the people in charge they are just collateral that is going to be hurt and they are the first line of defense for these people and uh the republican party is like using these people's weakness and the fact that they want to like keep their jobs uh to like get prevent this information from getting out and there's a or lot of just like, like actually believe in their bosses before they learn this stuff right right oh, yeah god yeah well like one of my favorite scenes is when they go in to this lady's house and they introduce themselves, uh, they're like, Woodward and Bernstein. And this lady's like, I love the work you're doing. I'm just so impressed. What's going on is against everything we stand for. And they and they go in and they're all excited because they finally found someone who's like willing to, you know, take the moral high ground and go on the record. And it turns out they just, it, they got the wrong lady. It's just a lady who's been reading along and agrees with them. And <laughs> uh, I think like, yeah, like, the fact that that's not handed to them, that they have to deal with, like, these scared, a lot of women, a lot of scared women who were like, I just wanted to work for this thing I believed in. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now look where, you know, I'm at the point now where I can't, hold on, I, somebody's knocking on my door. It's the fucking fence! I've come for you! <laughs> All right, what were you talking about? Do you remember? Or um, was it about the scared women? Yeah, it yes. was. It was about the. I don't remember exactly exactly where we left off. Um, but I, I like how um, completely ill-defined the threats are. Right, like these women are scared, but it, it's not. It's in fact usually made clear that no one has ever threatened anyone explicitly. All of this is implicit. These women are scared because they know there will be repercussions, but they don't know what they are. No one knows what they are. And so the negotiation of like power between the journalists uh, as they're like trying to get like any even like hint of information out of any of their sources uh, and how terrified they are along every axis to ever let anything out to them uh, is really good. Um, I mean, but people were getting intimidated because there's some scenes early on where they would talk to people. And then the people would change their stories immediately. Oh, yeah. But there was never... No one was ever, like, 
show they don't show what happened to them, right? They just say someone yeah, got no to one's, them. No one's going around threatening to break kneecaps, right? Right. We don't but know like what that means. But like it's implied though, because it. I don't think. Why it would is. that? I think I think it's implied that they're like, oh, make sure you know we want to we want to keep everything happy here in the you know the creep office. We want to make sure that everything you know one big happy corporate family. So if the press come around, don't say shit. Yeah, I, I like it's a much more of a it's much more of a soft power thing than like a explicit. Oh, if you if you talk to anyone, you're going to get fired, and they'll come after us, and it'll all be bad. Mm. Yeah, I th- I think the movie is like about the softness of the power, right? Because it, in the journalists, like they're always like, "Hey, we 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 love you. We're very nice to you. We we're gonna we'll always protect our our sources and everything." And the sources obviously like, you're full of shit. You just want your story. Please leave me alone. Oh God. Um, mm-hmm. and so I assume it's the same on the other end of like you don't need when you are like literally the the U.S. government performing a criminal conspiracy. You don't need to go up to people and be like, "This is what happens if you betray us." Like, People know when you're like, hey, just make sure no one, uh, just try not to try not to talk to everyone. We're all the family here, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, like, yeah, these are people who you like, you probably worked with for years who you like exchange Christmas cards with, right? Yeah. Like you go to company picnics, that sort of shit. Like there's a, there's a built in ability to abuse that power there. Mm-hmm. But there's also just like, I guess it's just paranoia. Like that that's there. Just the way that they kind of get the, uh, the two journalists get the runaround quite a bit where like they call a librarian to get some records and she's totally cool with it until five minutes later and then she's like i never talked to him and it's just it's um like i don't know the paranoia is just done very well that that one specifically was very fine to me because it played as like all that actually happened to me um i don't know there's no confirmation this but in my head he calls her up and she's like oh yeah this guy well let me go check check on the thing for this guy and then she like looks around for the thing and there's probably someone else in the office doing like the big like cutting cutting a neck uh gesture like what are you doing hang up hang up what are you doing Like, I feel like that's all that happened to her. And she was like, oh, God, am I? Oh, shit, shit. Uh, no, goodbye. And then hung up on them. And I, I believe none of those people probably knew how high up it went, like, uh, at that level. Like, a lot of the people in the committee and stuff. Like, there's only a few people that know, like, oh, Haldeman got, you know, this cut and Coulson got this cut. And, uh,. So I assume, like, yeah, they're just protecting each other versus trying to protect the higher-up guys. Uh, And obviously, like, that changes as they get deeper into the investigation. But, I don't know, I think it's pretty telling that, like, you know, we literally never know the identity of Deep Throat until, what, 2012? Yeah, 2005. Oh, 2005. Okay, so, yeah, like... I don't know. There's like a lot of huge sort of implications there, but um, it's great, folks. I don't know. Uh, no, absolutely <laughs> not. So the thing I want to talk about is I for a movie that's like about like trying to tell the news in like this very apolitical way, like that scene where they where he review uh, Wood reveals he's a Republican and he gives him this look. <laughs> the thing I think that's really interesting, and you could say it's dated, but I don't actually think it's a thing that is actually dated from the seventies. Is when they go around investigating, Bernstein is like the very like straight to the facts. Everyone's treated as an equal, like liberal crusader type guy. Yes. Where he's just going to ask everyone a question the exact 
exact same way. And what what it does is terrifies all these women that this guy's coming up and just like addressing them, like peppering them with all these very incisive questions. And then you have Woodward coming in as like a much more traditionalist, like no, don't don't like ignore him. He's dumb. I'm, he's I'm here to tell just you. Com- oh, go on. Sorry. He's, he's, he's like just. he's like you don't have to answer these questions if you don't want to just be comfortable sit down i don't want to make things hard for you like understanding the power dynamics of this stuff lives in in a much more like i'm here to like i agree with you that there's this gender dynamic that he doesn't see and we need to like address if we're going to get anything forward i think that stuff's really interesting and incisive and good i assume it comes from them like talking to the actual men and them being like that Um, well yeah like uh one of the things that uh Dustin Hoffman says he noticed about Bernstein when he met him was like, there were two things. One was that he smoked incessantly. And two was that he was more like righteous. Like he felt like he knew that he was right. He never felt unsure. His confidence never wavered. Whereas um, Woodward was a bit newer to the Washington post and he's, a bit more interested in trying to connect the dots by following the rules. Yeah. And uh, Bernstein is just sort of like, actually it's, it, it's, it's easier to get what you want if you play it in a certain way. But Woodward also has the advantage of being a little more sensitive to the people that he's dealing with. Like he's the only one that defends uh, like they approach like this, woman that works in their office and they're like will you talk to this guy you used to date who worked in the committee to reelect?" and she's like no the you know that's i don't want to use the guy that i care about and uh bernstein's like pushing her and pushing her and woodward's sort of like no we don't want you to do anything that would embarrass yourself and i i couldn't tell i don't know what you two think like i couldn't tell if he actually was like trying to play her so the thing the thing I think is important about that is that it's both, right? Like he he doesn't want to actually inconvenience people, but he also knows that you are going to get people more in your pocket by being nice to them than like just like being direct with them, even if you're right. Like uh sometimes especially if you're right, you need to convince people to come to your side and do the hard thing if it's the right thing. And you can't just do that by like demanding that they understand the rightness of your crusade. Uh mm. because that doesn't get anyone aboard. And in some like in some ways, the way he like soft pressures these people with like being nice and kind of aw shucks, like down home kind of guy is exactly the thing that her, their bosses are doing to them. Like that's the thing. Like this power structure is inherent in people in society. Like this is why they all defend these men because these men come up and talk to them and are nice to them and respect their feelings on this matter usually. And the ones that don't are the guys like when he, when uh, Bernstein goes into the house with that lady who's like super scared and she starts talking, the one one guy she hangs like just hangs out to dry being like it'd be really good if you got this asshole is the one guy who is portrayed as like the one who isn't this kind of boss who right, isn't yeah. the like nice family guy he's like the businessman who comes up and tells them like how it is in their committee to reelect the president uh because those people don't inspire loyalty in the same way that these good old boys do and i think that's like an important mirror to the two sides of this investigation that runs throughout oh, the film definitely i also think the apolitical or sort of bipartisan angle of the whole thing like that's also part of the myth making like one of the things that people in retrospect always seem to pat themselves on the back for about watergate as opposed to when bill clinton was impeached 
uh, and that whole thing was that it wasn't a one-sided attack by a political party. It was both sides seeing the corruption and wanting to, but like, you know, those judges that unanimously voted Nixon out, they, some of them were judges that Nixon had picked himself. And like, they really liked to pat themselves on the back for this. And then anything after that's happened where, you know, like even now people are afraid to go after Trump and it's because they don't want it to look one-sided. Like there's just this sort of buying into this myth that it's got to be both sides that want this. It can't be just one side. And there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I feel I, it's interesting to me how the movie like plays into that back padding of uh bipartisan like i think there's like one character who uh gets sort of the portrayal as being more left than everyone and it's it's bradley uh but like there's a, a character that oh goodness is it jack warden who plays the guy that uh sort of is like, I love this country, I don't want to be a part of trashing it. And then when the news breaks and these guys have to cover their footsteps, or excuse me, cover their asses um, publicly, they're all just like, well, you know, the Washington Post is owned by that Bradley, and he was never a fan of Nixon. Well, uh, the thing that's important there is like, I assume that's real news footage because all the TV stuff otherwise yes, is as yes, well. Yes, yes, yes. And... Like, the Washington Post is a left-leaning paper. Like, what that might mean in 2019 is a very different thing, obviously. But, uh, like, it's true. Like, this is a a liberal paper attacking a Republican president. And that stuff is acknowledged within the movie by all the newspaper men realizing when they're just going to keep following this, like, going, oh, this could bring trouble to the paper because you're just, like beating a dead horse over what they thought was a non-story, right? Like, this stuff is very easy to look like it is incredibly partisan. Um, and after the fact, everyone might say, oh, we knew it was bad and we all agreed together and it was a great moment for the country. But until all of those proceedings happened, everyone was lining up along party lines here. It's just, it's it's definitely not, like, played that way. So it's just interesting to me. It's very, very interesting. Um, oh, another, like, kind of fun fact is that uh, Redford and Hoffman learned each other's lines because they wanted the characters to feel as united as a person as possible. Like, I don't know how to word it any better, but they didn't want them to seem like two separate people. So they just kind of jump in to each other's lines and they speak as one even though they both have like completely different methodology okay and i, I and it, it's pretty obvious like they uh they also have a podcast network <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they seem to have this like rapport that uh didn't jackson tweet that it like bordered on the homoerotic <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it's time to talk about the other pillar of this movie uh which <laughs> came out everyone be shipping these two like crazy Yep, and then there would be the people yelling, don't ship real people. Uh, to which I would say, uh, Dustin Hoffman and Roger Redford are not real people. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a movie about two incredibly hot, like, 70s disheveled guys learning to become one with each other in the face of, uh, like, this massive uh, hegemonic foe that they have to take down. Uh, so, yeah. But, like, like the two the two very distinct varieties of 70s disheveled guy, because, yes. like, Carl Bernstein is played as, like, a slightly nebbish, like, uh, officious, like, city liver, and Bob Woodward is, like, two steps away from a hayseed in a suit. Like, he's just Clark Kent on some level. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, a slightly slimier version, right? Like, the kind of guy who, like goes around and like probably hits on women a little more than he should or whatever. Like there's a certain realism and griminess to them that is inherent in seventies portrayals. I feel like uh, yep. from 70 films I've seen where just everything seems like grimy. If, if that McDonald's existed today, it would be condemned for being just the <laughs> grossest place on earth. Oh, I love all the scenes in the McDonald's so much. Oh, they're so good. Cause you can like, you can't really tell it's a McDonald's unless you're really paying attention as opposed to like the product placement heavy, uh, films of today but it's also like i don't know it's just such a great and but and it also like evokes a mcdonald's without feeling like mcdonald's today like there's like a a prototype of mcdonald's that was mcdonald's of the 70s because the 80s came and cleaned everything up and made it all very impersonal and gross like gross in a spiritual way not in a physical way (laughs) (laughs) it also seems like cool that these guys that have a buttload of bookshelves and they're very intelligent men and seem to have classical music just you know around and uh seem very intellectual just uh break down all of their uh case at a mcdonald's over a burger and fries mm-hmm. i mean i i i, I don't know like i this movie doesn't get into too much like deep character work, right? Like it's not really interested yes. in Woodward and Burton's people, uh, but I do think that it does at least slightly play the like classical music stuff as a hilarious front <laughs> for Woodward. Woodward's not actually that deep, right, in this movie, uh, but he doesn't. Yes. He uh, he does like present as very serious in a way that Bernstein doesn't bother to do. Well, also he's like kind of like a like he definitely pawns himself off as like a i'm i'm from the midwest i'm gonna come here and shake your hand and smile directly in your face and then like in the morning he goes and gets his paper with like his gold chain and his 70s chest hair just out (laughs) (laughs) he's kind of a basic bitch (laughs) like he's very like like he's trendy he's midwestern he's only worked at the paper nine months where it was bernstein's like He's the city, you know? He's been doing this since he was 16. Bernstein's also so convinced that he's right that he has no friends, right? Like, he's been here forever, Mm -hmm. but he's on the same level as Woodward, and they just kind of throw them two together because they're the two people nobody cares about. Well, they said themselves uh, in the documentary I watched, like, the only reason they got that story was because nobody else was in the office that day. Mm -hmm. The burglary story was theirs because nobody else was around to do it. So it's like, okay, we're the low end of the totem pole here uh, yeah there's that uh hilarious scene early on where they're trying to get the names from that girl <laughs> and then yes and then Wib was like no we can't do this Bernstein we have to respect women uh and then she just as a reward for his women respecting she just does it anyway <laughs> she just does the yes. thing they were trying to uh convince her to do anyway uh, because the, that's is that the the woman at the post where they yeah Ask her to, yeah, spy on the guy she used to date. Yep. Uh, which is a very good scene. 
there's so many good actresses just tearfully hand-wringing in this film. Uh, the woman that eventually calls out, I can't remember which guy she calls out, McGritter? Uh, I think so. Oh, that I don't remember that actress's name, but I could just watch her make faces all day. She was very good. Uh, bit where once he knows he's been got he's like all right you can have it but you just don't print that i was in her apartment please i have a wife a kid and a dog and a cat (laughs) (laughs) he has he he has a wife and children and a cat and a dog and the first time that he says it uh who is it doesn't looks up like he's heard something like absolutely ridiculous he almost like courses to camera he's so incredulous yeah yeah Yeah, it almost looks like he breaks it's super funny because he breaks he's on the he's on the phone with the with the girl and Burston and Wilbur are just like listening in on the line unable to say anything Uh, and then he calls up uh, Stanley (laughs) and he does the same line and they fucking lose it (laughs) yes it's so good it's very funny Uh, as ever uh, as with a trend with classic movies much funnier than uh, its reputation would suggest I agree the first time I tried to watch this movie uh I feel like the only thing that I got out of it was that it it kind of plods along and you uh it demands your attention in a way that like m- modern movies will constantly just spell things out for you and I I know sometimes this podcast I will come across as like old man yelling at cloud but <laughs> like, really like I don't know I really like how I don't know. Sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, is there anything else? Because I, I think I don't know. I think I think that was a good talk on the movie. Okay, one last thing before we go. Questions? No, not that. Two before we things. get to questions, yes. Uh, Robert Redford or Dustin Ho- or Dustin Hoffman? You have to pick one. Dustin Hoffman. Jackson. His hair is too beautiful. His hair is too beautiful. Um, Robert Redford. <laughs> uh, I am also Robert Redford. We talked about this earlier, Jackson. You were like, it's much closer for me than uh, it is for... Uh, like, I'm all in on Robert Redford. Yeah, it's close like, to me, but I, des- I decided that uh, Dustin Hoffman would be... If I was to be a disheveled, hot 70s guy, that would be the guy I would be. Uh, Robert Redford's hotter. Yeah, I agree. I want to be... And fuck <laughs> Dustin Hoffman in this movie. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Redford's smoking. too blonde. He's too. Who's too, he's too blonde for me. It's kind of too much smoking. Oh, he <laughs> was the seventies. Everyone was smoking. Oh, I know. Yeah, everyone, uh, Honestly, it's amazing that Carl uh, Bernstein is still alive if he yeah. was actually smoking that much. <laughs> yeah, no, they're both still alive. It's yeah. crazy. Um, one thing just. Uh, another couple of fun facts about the production is that uh, an early draft of this uh, script was written by Nora Ephron, who was dating Carl Bernstein at the time. <laughs> Just throwing it. And also his hair was that luxurious. Uh, and then and, and the other thing was that they painstakingly recreated the Washington Post offices for the film and it's uh kind of eerie how similar it looks. It's just a very good set. It's a very it doesn't good set. feel like a set at all. It feels like everything's on location and that whole 
all of those newspaper room scenes are just a set. Um, the Wikipedia page about the uh, with the little factoids about that draft written by uh, Efron and then also like Bernstein helping is uh, the only bit of that that made it into the movie is the bit where Bernstein like tricks the secretary to get in on the guy, uh, which is yes. that didn't happen. That's completely yeah. made up. Yeah, that didn't yeah. happen at them all. Them complaining yeah. about or them writing a script that is just like a broad comedy or like just like a what they thought like a blockbuster version of this would be is very funny given the movie that exists is like the most low-key thing in the world. Yeah, it's uh, not a blockbuster in any sense of the word. Uh the other thing that I think is funny is uh Ebert's review of this movie. Yeah. Uh, Destiny We're always going to bring up Ebert. Yeah, no, yes. if, if it's a movie between, Ebert stands like, for life on this so, podcast. So this Just is, throw that out there. This is from the time, so he, he he didn't circle around and write about it for his great movies or anything. And it's it's like a three and a half out of four stars movie, but it's just him complaining about how, like, it's, it does the same thing over again. He's like, yeah, they investigate. That's what reporters do. I work at a newspaper. I understand how this works. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to say it for two and a half hours. Uh, but then he's like, but it's incredibly well acted and directed, so I can't hate it because it's, it's correct. It's a true story. It's good but also why do they do this <laughs> <laughs> yeah no we, if, i if, don't know if we watch a movie from like between the late 60s and the uh, mid 2000s we're always going to see if there's an ebert review <laughs> yeah i think that is like one of the saddest facts is that we just won't have any more ebert reviews for movies now like i just wish he was here to talk about everything uh <laughs> the other thing i wanted to say about uh 70s journalism uh aesthetics is this movie put me in the mind of zodiac and how that dogged um was it the what character i can't remember who's the like lead actor in zodiac is it robert Ruffalo? oh mark ruffalo robert Jr. and uh, jake gyllenhaal the three i don't know which one you mean thank you okay i'm thinking of gyllenhaal i forgot gyllenhaal was in there but yeah, uh, I think uh, Zodiac takes a lot of cues from all the oh, presidents. Yes, yes it does. David, David and... Fincher's never had an original idea in his life get fucked. He would <laughs> die if he could make a movie like this. I, oh my... <laughs> I know, but that being said, I think I think Zodiac's a great movie. I, I and... remember not liking it that much at the time. I, was gonna... I, I don't like David Fincher does... at all, so. Oh, well, I think what it does is a lot what this movie does in a way that I think um, just just the tedium of writing for a newspaper and following a story for an extended period of time. I I think that is just, I don't know. I think that's interesting minutia. And I'm like fascinated that he felt the need to kind of put a nod to that. in. I mean, I I guess because it's real, it's true. It's how that works. And I don't know. It's maybe it's an aesthetic. I have uh, a soft spot for Mm-hmm. I, I kept turning to M as we watched the movie, and I'd go, "I'd kill to work in this office, <laughs> specifically this era." I would just love it. Yep. Just typewriters and running around with phone books and smoking and binders and folders and file cabinets. I love it. Yeah, it's it's good. I I just want to say that like um, I think my favorite shot in the movie because there's a lot of not very showy but really impressive once you like think about them shots. Right, uh, mm-hmm. is the one where it's all like it's 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 kind of goes between a medium as the close-up as the zoom changes of robert redford on the phone for about 10 minutes uh <laughs> where he's trying to get one guy um the thing is the guy i think it's the check it's the, the he's kind of trying to confirm the who the check went to 
Uh, mm-hmm. And it just stays on him. And like, there's a period of the shot where you see everyone gathering around a TV in the background, and they all disperse, and it's all in his face. And it was just like, this is this is amazing. David Fincher would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, I think that's it. So let's get into questions. Yeah. Do we have any? If you want to send us questions, you can send them to podcast at rollmapping.com uh, about any movie, not just these ones, but uh, these are the questions we've got. Uh, we've got one uh, from Tron. Uh, helpfully organize the questions into bullet points, please, if you have multiple questions, do that. It's so much nicer. Um, and Tron asks specifically, how do you feel about the scoring, the sparse scoring in the movie? Because uh, I know Destiny talked about it when we were watching it. I love it. It's so unassuming. It feels like it belongs in a different movie. It's very like whistling and throwing a stone, <laughs> like a skipping stone. Like it's very like folksy and low key in a way that like the movie isn't at all. And uh, in the sense of like you know, it's about this big suspenseful thing. Uh, but the music is taking its sweet time. It's going to take a walk. It's going to stop and tie its shoe. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. I love it. Uh, and then the other question, Tron, that I don't think we've really covered here is about, do you think like the depiction specifically of Sally Aiken, who's the uh, woman who works in the Washington Post office, they get to ask her boyfriend for a list of names or whatever. Uh, do you think uh, the movie's like, aware of how much it is about the undervaluing of women's work in these spaces in this time or do you think it just replicates the reality of that Uh i think it's a bit of both i i thought it was very um interesting and then this is kind of it's it's tangential but like okay so there's a scene where they go into the white house library right to see if they can get the records and the line that one of them says is that like we're we're not gonna get a sympathetic we need a sympathetic face and it immediately cuts to a black man who's like here you go <laughs> here are the records it sure does uh, so I think I don't know on some level I think the the movie knows that this is some like just there are a lot of marginalized people uh I mean they can't not have it on their minds that like culture is at this tumultuous point with women's rights and racial equality so i think there's an undercurrent of that going on and i would like to believe it's intentional but i don't you know i don't know for sure all the presence men is realist literature Uh, yep (laughs) (laughs) Uh, thank you to camille for that bit that we're gonna pull out every time we see anything with like interrogations of how power structures work but also, like, did did they mean to do this, or did they just describe a thing? <laughs> Who can say? <laughs> Who can say? Uh, our friend Allison sends in an email. This movie is so good. Robert Redford called me. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I would fight Allison for yeah, Robert no. Redford's attention, but I think Allison could take me. Uh, we'll not be passing on Allison's number. You have to do it yourself. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one of the just uh, if you are if you want to learn more about Robert Redford. Check out Inside Daisy Clover um, with Natalie Wood. He's just, woo, woo. (laughs) 
And uh, we have one more question um, from D, which is, uh, so this, uh, they watched this movie in ninth grade because their journalism teacher made them watch it. Uh, and they were like, uh, my, my, uh, classmates found it unbearably dull while I was hooked, which should have tipped me off that I was a stuffy little nerd. Uh, <laughs> and their question was, do you have any movies that are kind of boring and how would you pitch them to other people? I feel like Ooh. half the movies I like are technically really boring. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I would say specifically. I, like, my answer is that I, I don't really pitch a lot of movies to people who I don't, you know, I, I know that you're into movies first, right? Like, I, I'm not yeah. out here blindly pitching stuff. What I tell people is, I just use a lot of cliches. I'm like, it's a slow burn, but the payoff's real good. Or, <laughs> it's a nice examination of XYZ. And, uh, you know, it's a bit slow moving, but it, it'll really you know show you what this subject is it's a great examination like i i uh i i can i can be a, sa- a salesman <laughs> yeah i don't have a really good specific example for this but i do have my example of a film i watched uh was made to watch because it was appropriate to the subject at school and everyone hated but i thought was amazing uh which is when our music class showed amadeus <laughs> <laughs> people don't like amadeus there's so much to love in amadeus i thought it was boring it, it goes like it's hilarious it that's interesting yeah. that is interesting uh i was always the kid that liked um old movies when i was really really young so like trying to get my friends to watch anything in black and white was always really hard and uh i I don't know. I I wish I had more specific examples, but like I have a friend to this day who won't watch black and white movies, and I think she's a philistine. <laughs> I've just always been stuffy and nerdy. Uh, that's fair. Well, what's the one boring <laughs> you think movie you think everyone else think was boring that you like? Oh, um, hmm, Wild Strawberries, Jackson. Oh, I don't. I don't have a good answer for this. I've forgotten every. You movie absolutely have an answer for this. Yeah, Come but on. I've now forgotten every other movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, no. that's my problem. Is we're gonna I'm sit on the here spot, until you so answer I'm this. Blinking. You're on the spot. You no. do podcasting for a living. <laughs> I've never seen a movie before. <laughs> oh, just anything where there's like a sort of like this movie where there's just a procedural, yeah, sort of tedium i know i keep i suppose i suppose like i really like the the right stuff which is that uh 83 hour long movie about space yeah i have also not watched that because it sounded boring as hell (laughs) yeah okay i i I can't say if it hold up but yeah i i love the right stuff when i first saw it uh people should watch the manchurian candidate that's the other one go on uh, my answer would be Barry Lyndon, which I like a lot, but it's a three-hour movie about <laughs> dark comedy in uh, antiquity, and it's not maybe for everyone, but I think it's great. So Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's it. Uh, next Fortnite, next movie, we are going to be watching Daughters of the Dust, uh, which is directed by Julie Dash, written by Julie Dash, came out in 1991. Where can people find this movie? Destiny, U.S., Netflix in the USA. Jackson, UK. Uh, it is on Netflix in the UK. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have Netflix for whatever reason, I know in the UK it's on the BFI player, because I was looking this up, and I was like, <laughs> what's a BFI player? Well, Just Watch don't have the BFI player, but apparently it's there. Okay. Um... <laughs> 
All right. Uh, with that done, we're out of here. We did. We talked about the movies. We did it. I still don't have an outro. We did the goddamn news. We did the goddamn news. <laughs> Do you want some plugs? Or are we just done? Oh, we should. Yes, we should totally plug. I thought we. Yes, you're right. You're the professional podcaster now, Jackson. Where can people find all of our good content? You can find all of our good content at abnormalmapping.com. There's a bunch of podcasts there, including a game club. Uh, that's very good if you like video games uh, i'm at head fills off and if you want to support us you can do that uh you can go to patreon.com slash abnormal mapping to support us with one dollar a month you get our most popular podcast which is the great gundam project we watch two episodes of gundam a week and uh that's unfortunate right now <laughs> we also watch good shows like macross which uh goes along with gundam right now uh check that out people seem to like it uh it's good you can find me on twitter at em underscore being destiny where can people find you on Twitter and most social media, I can be found at at FridgeBuzz now, all one word. Uh, and with that, uh, we can get some goddamn lunch, which is what really matters. Mm-hmm. They got their goddamn lunch. <laughs> <laughs>